Hello and welcome to So You Think You Can Fanon. Please check the link tree in the description and see all of our beautiful, lovely, salacious links to listen to more. Thank you. Good evening or morning or afternoon or dark hour at the darkest point of night. Anybody who's listening... So you think you can pat on his back to read another part of all guardsmen party? I'm bad. I'm doing my Jacob. I'm turning up. He's shitting Hello. himself. What, should we just should we just let him continue to shit himself? Um, I mean, I I have a funny little anecdote about a book. Um, so he about shitting yourself? Shitting himself. Well, no, about 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 a book that's not about shitting yourself. I was saying that Matt can just like. Shed himself while I tell the, the story. Don't actually like make okay. noise. Tell it. Um, okay. So, so I I work at a bookstore. Uh, which which my my time on that is slowly running out. Um, because we're getting closed down. Uh, because the school didn't um renew our contract, and it's a whole thing. But First they did uh, it to Moe's. Now they're doing it to your job. This is truly what the what the liberal agenda wants. Uh, being that the student congress is the one who uh, advocated for this change, uh, kind of, kind of, yes, it is the liberal agenda taking us out. Um, I was working an author event today, and uh, we were we, we didn't get to sit on the author event. Uh, we were outside of it, but you know we had the books, and basically this author, um, I can't remember her name, um, Chuck Dixon. But she, it's not Chuck Dixon. I think it was like Hero Q. I, I think it was like Rebecca Nix or something like that. Um, and a former OU student wrote a fantasy novel and I was looking through it because I was just like, well, I want to see if this book is any good. And like the, the prose in it seemed fine. I didn't like take the time to like read the whole thing because I had stuff to work on on my laptop. But the acknowledgments uh, page, which I which I, I went to the end of because I wanted to see how long the book was, has a very funny like little anecdotes. The last paragraph of the acknowledgments said... I don't know if you can thank Taylor Swift and the and the creators of Avatar: The Last Airbender in an acknowledgement page, but I'm gonna do that. Like, like that's verbatim what it said, and we were la- we were just like laughing. Like, it was like this is so based. I'm pretty sure that's what an acknowledgement page is for. To be fair, she yeah. also thanked all of her Patreon patrons, but didn't name them. Like, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> at least put their names in there. Mm-hmm. Oh. Are we ready to dive in? Yes, sir. No, I actually want to have a 45-hour discussion on um, you shitting yourself. You need to stop, man. I'm pretty sure I've gone to the bathroom less times in my life than you have for the purposes of shitting myself. <laughs> I've ne- I haven't shit myself in a long time, man. First of all, that was hurtful and rude. Well, how about you prove it by Second reading all, the well, reading the next entry in all Guardsmen Party? And I believe linking me the episode or linking I, me the chapter. Why can you not go to the fucking website and just? I have grab no it? eyes. I have. No it's literally shoes. just the All Garza Party <laughs> I don't <Yeah>. have hands. <laughs> No brain, no eyes, no hands, no gender, no Twitter, no balls, no is cum. It, is it the is it the space marine orgasming? Uh, Blood angel with his hands touching his face. That's not the org. That's 
That's the one that we read last time, I'm quite sure. And then we go on after that. There's a moral about getting what you wish for in there somewhere? Yes, that's where we ended, I'm pretty sure. There's a moral about getting what you wish for in there somewhere. Am I starting or am I twerking? You're after that line, there's a moral. Uh, That's where you start. The next entry after the word space moral. That was a fucking disgusting burp. I want you to cut that out. I regret I know. that. It was <laughs> awful. We ascended to the planet alongside the hail of spores spewing from the hive ship. It went a lot faster and required fewer evasive maneuver- maneuvers than our approach had, which was good for our frayed nerves. Now that Sergeant Rebus and his team of suicidal supermen had departed, Gravis and his scouts came a little more chat became a little more chatty. The scout piling the shuttle brought the gravity up enough to keep us in our seats and told Gravis that he was starting scans. Gravis brought out an oversized data slate and began staring at it with the other scout. They didn't seem to think that we really needed to take part in the discussion, but when Tink set his drone to hover over their shoulders, Gravis decided it was easier to just let us participate. Gravis and his two scouts were searching the battlefield below us for signs of zoanthropes. Specifically, they were looking for big old bolts of warp lightning which could be traced back to the Xenocyker firing them. That sounded fairly simple, but given how far up we still were and how much of a mess the battlefield was, we decided it was pointless to try and help. While the Marines strained their eyes, the rest of us concentrated at the sort of things us lonely guardsmen find important, namely the weather, terrain, and hostile positions. These turned out to be acid rain, wasteland with giant spiky rocks, and everywhere. It's like the, I'm imagining the, you know, the, the, the wasteland that Goku and Vegeta fought in? Yes. That's what I'm imagining. Probably accurate. And he's Ooh. just like, Kakarot, you try not Kakarot, to Kakarot, you can't fire that bolter. Come Kakarot, on. try not to come challenge. In short, what's <laughs> in a place we wanted to get anywhere near, much less drop into via grab shoot. Nubby and Tink started the argument by complaining about the suicidal nature of the mission and suggested that we just lie down on the rapport, which prompted the scout marine to tell us to all grow, grow a backbone and a proper sense of duty. Amy told him where he could stick his backbone and sense of duty, and things went downhill from there. Sadly, there wasn't time to get a real good fight going. We only managed a bit of name-calling and a few anatomically improbable threats before Gravis finally spotted some warp lightning. Sarge, Doc, and Twitch stared at the data slate with the marine. A section of the battlefield he was looking at was a completely free-for-all between the orcs and the nids, and a particularly dense cluster of dragged rocks was emitting bursts of lightning. Gravis said that the frequency of the bolts indicated that it was a lone psyker, and went on to point out that the position was not strongly defended against an airborne insertion. He suggested that we move on the target immediately, before it was killed or the battle shifted, but Doc and Sarge didn't like that they couldn't see inside the pile of rock the psyker was hiding in. Twitch was Twitch. Sarge asked Gravis how he was sure that A, there wasn't a whole hive's worth of nids in there, and at Twitch's insistence, B, the lightning-shooting Xenos wasn't actually an orc. Gravis just glared down at us and said that he was about 73% certain this was an acceptable target. Our fearless leader tried to stare down the space marine for about 5 seconds, then decided that sort of decision, not to mention arguing with an Astartes, was above his pay grade. Sarge rounded on the rest of us and started bellowing orders to prep for deployment. Tink got spots dealt up and verified that our scopes were synced. Nubby and Amy flung a few final insults at the scout marine. 
Doc tried to remember which button was on his graph shoot, and Twitch angrily, eh, angrily grabbed the last armful of explosives while muttering about no one taking orcs seriously. When everyone was ready, we formed up behind Sergeant Gravis and his scout. A few minutes later, the shuttle hatch slammed open. Space Marine stepped out of out into the air and dropped out of sight. Sarge then followed him to the edge, looked down, and froze as he saw just how far down and covered with pointy things in Xenos the ground was. Then the Space Scout Marine pushed him. Now, just to be clear, while there are entire regiments of guardsmen dedicated to doing grav drops, the rest of us think they're fucking insane. Even your average catechin will call an Elysian or any other type of drop trooper an adrenaline-hungry madman. And mind you, that's coming from someone who would gleefully try to kill a war boss with nothing but a combat knife. I mean, who in the right mind flies all the way to the battlefield in a perfectly functional shuttle that jumps out of it while it still has a click off the fucking ground? Anyway, dropping through the air towards a pile of rocks that resembled nothing so much as a giant demonic hedgehog was not on the list of things we joined the guard to do. The fact that there was a hostile psyker inside said rocks, not to mention the bloody melee of orcs and tyranids all around, did not make it any more attractive. If it wasn't for the fact that Sergeant Gravis was already on the ground and clearing our landing area, we all would have stayed in that shuttle. Also, the scout marine kept pushing us. Despite how unpleasant we found the drop, the painfully direct training we received meant we all made it down in one piece. One piece doesn't mean cleanly, though. Only Sarge and Nubby made what could be called good landings, and that's only if you count landing on an unsuspecting orc and Hormagant as good. Doc and Amy wound up colliding with each other in the air and made an awkward dual landing on one of the jagged spires. Amy managed to stick the landing and started picking off targets, but Doc wound up sliding off and bouncing to the ground like a terrified pinball. Tink outright stopped his descent by having Spot come up under him. He happily shot under the melee from his perch until a flesh borer to the leg reminded him that hanging in the air where there is no cover and everyone can see you is a terrible fucking idea. Luckily, he landed next to Doc, to which did not hit anything. But he swerves around a lot for some reason. Sergeant Gravis had cleared us a beachhead. And those of us who hadn't gotten shot or cracked a rib on the way down widened it. This was our first chance to use the pulse weapons. Tink and Theo disguised... Pulse weapons Tink and Theo had disguised for us on soft targets. And it was glorious. No heresy intended. But Tau carbines blow lasguns out of the water. They hit harder than a hot shot and reload easier, too. We were dropping nids and orcs left and right. It was gratifying to see Sergeant Gravis stop and stare at us when he ran down, ran out of enemies. Space Marine didn't stop for long or ask about our sexier-than-standard-issue weapons. Once he was sure we had the perimeter locked down, he switched to his power sword and made his way towards the cluster of fallen spires that was occasionally illuminated by blasts of lightning. The scout, who was perched similarly to Amy, and had stolen at least three of her kills. I, I emphasized a totally wrong word. I just realized. Her kills. Started following his boss by jumping from spire to spire. The official plan called for us to leave them to it. We were just supposed to secure a landing area for the shuttle and keep reinforcements out. We were doing far better than expected, though. And Sarge started feeling all, I'm this big Inquisition guy who actually helped instead of just following orders. So he followed Gravis to lend a hand with a zoanthrope. And Twitch tagged along for his own reasons. The rest of us were more than happy to stay put and keep shooting any orcs or tyrants that wandered our way. Looking back, holding that perimeter was far too easy. There was never a concentrated attack on our position, just the occasional Xenos who retweeted, retreated, retreated in our direction or was checking out 
what all the plasma fire was coming from. We thought that the Xenos were just keeping each other at bay. The Tyranids were, weren't pouring in to reinforce their psychic artillery unit because the orcs were in the way. We didn't realize that something had gone wrong until Sergeant Gravis flew out of the side of the rock pile. Well, not flew exactly. More like was thrown. Something like a ton and a half of power-armored space marines sailed through the air like a thing that is very bad at sailing, crashed through four of the smaller rock pillars, and barely activated his gravity in time to dodge a fatal collision with a larger fifth. Doc tried to ask Sarge what the hell just happened, but our fearless leader was busy screaming, swearing, and firing his pulse carbine on full auto. When Doc tried again, Twitch cut in, and a slightly hysterical tone told us that Sarge was busy right now. He suggested that anyone who wanted to live should get some cover between themselves and the rock pile. We didn't need tell telling twice. Since we were keeping our heads far down as was anatomically possible, it turned out that Sarge was half-blind, and Twitch wound up getting a nasty concussion. No one really saw what happened next. Luckily, Spot recorded the whole thing. A few seconds after Twitch's warning, he and Sarge came out of the rock pile at a dead sprint. They dove behind the first pillars they could find, and a split second later, the entire cluster of class pillars exploded. Three green glowing projectiles were propelled out of the hole, while Sarge and Twitch had exited and splattered apart against the rock Amy was perched on. One of them, or a random piece of debris, much of clipped Twitch's pillar two, because a sizable chunk broke off the top and nailed him on the helmet. He managed to he managed to daze told you so before collapsing. In the aftermath, Doc ran over to check on Twitch and Sarge. The rest of us kept our eyes on the perimeter, except for Amy. She descended from her gore-covered perch with a cry of, Oh God, it's everywhere. I think I got some down my shirt. Tell me this isn't mashed here and it's... Sarge blearily sat up and told her not to worry. It was only mashed orcs. This did not improve Amy's mood. Sarge calmed Gravis, verified that both the Marines had survived the blast, and made sure the shuttle was on its way to pick us back up. While we waited and shot the occasional orc or nid that took an interest in us, Sarge explained what had happened inside of the rock pile. Sarge had followed Gravis down a sort of tunnel that headed towards where the warp lightning, warp lightning was coming from. The space marine had been sprinting ahead and had obviously intended to rush the psyker with his power sword before it could notice and fry him with lightning. Sarge caught up just in time to see Gravis exit the tunnel and pull off the close to close to melee range part of the plan, but the Xeno Psyker hadn't been the frail ranged support unit they had expected. Instead, Sergeant Gravis wound up face to face with a big old psychic, not to mention psychotic and psychopathic orc. To the Space Marine's credit, he hadn't hesitated at all. He'd waded right in and started chopping and stabbing while Sarge gave covering fire. Unfortunately, the weird boy had a bunch of bodyguards, and they brought him enough time to do some warpy stuff. Sarge said the moral of the story was, if a warp energy-infused orc charges you with supernatural speed and a big glowy stick, it is a much, 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 much better idea to dodge his swing than to try to block it with your power sword. So when the space marine got knocked out of the park, Sarge decided it was time to leg it. He'd made liberal use of his flash grenades and nearly ran into Twitch on his way out. Twitch had apparently been picking out the detonators for the net packs he'd, without bothering to tell anyone, dropped all over the rock pile on his way down. Anyway, Sarge held the weird boy and his surviving minders off long enough for Twitch to sort out which button he wanted to press, and they got out of the pile a few seconds ahead of the explosion. The orcs had not, which was why Amy was picking pieces of them off of her armor. Sergeant Gravis and his scout rejoined us just as Sarge finished his story. Nubby, ever the diplomat, asked if their bug hunt had gone as well as a perimeter securing had. Amy and Tink snickered, but Sarge shut the three of them up. The two marines didn't look like they were in the mood for any bullshit. They're wearing helmets, how do they know? <laughs> What were they thinking? I hope someone got fired for that writing blunder. Damn. Between the acid damage and the new sets of dents and scratches, Gravis' armor was beginning to look rather 
ragged, and the scowl looked even worse. He'd apparently been trying to find a hole in the top of the pile to snipe through, and didn't have the same hardwired response to the to a warning from Twitch that us guardsmen did. His stealth cloak was completely ruined, plus there were at least two sizable holes in his carabus armor. He was still alive, though, and rather rudely turned down Doc's offer to patch him up. So we figured he was fine and had learned an important lesson about warnings from Demolition's troopers. The stealth, the stealth shuttle dropped out of the clouds above us. We got back into the air without further incident. All of us more or less collapsed into the oversized seats, despite the fact that we had only been on the ground for about 15 minutes, and only two of us had been noticeably injured, we were exhausted. Our rest didn't last long, though. Despite the perfectly reasonable su suggestion some of us made concerning calling the mission off and pinning the blame on Mr. 73% certain it's an acceptable target, Serge and Gravis both immediately started searching for another Xenos Psyker. By the time we'd finished reloading, they found a slightly less rock-covered hilltop that was emitting lightning. This we had a clear view of, and the lightning was obviously coming from a snaky-looking Xenos, which perfectly matched the images of zoanthropes that we'd seen. Gravis and the scout did not find it amusing when Sarge asked for Twitch's opinion anyway. Luckily for everyone's nerves, Twitch was too concussed to be smug, and simply agreed that the bug looked like a bug. As our shuttle neared the hill, we realized that this drop was going to be nastier than the last. This time, instead of a free-for-all, the hill was clearly in tiered hands, claws, whatever. It looked fairly critical to the local battle with the greenskins. The Nids definitely weren't going to let us wipe out their artillery without a fight. They'd reinforce it as heavily as they could manage. Perimeter duty would not be another cakewalk, and if it took too long to subdue the Psyker, we'd be up to our asses and bugs. Sarge quickly split us into pairs, assigned us to the three main approaches to the hill, and convinced Twitch to share his mines with us. We clear the area, push out, and plant the mines, and fall back towards the top if things got hairy. Before anything more complex could be put together, we reached the DZ. Sergeant Gravis was the first one down again. He leaned out the rear hatch, sighted the zoanthrope, and pretty much dropped right on top of the Psyker. The rest of us followed out as quickly and professionally as we could manage. None of us even had to be pushed out of the shuttle by the scout this time. Every single one of us landed with our weapons firing. There were seven or eight termagants keeping the zoanthrope company, and only one of them was still alive when we hit the ground. Sarge finished that one off when we all fanned out towards our assigned areas. We moved fast, motivated by a desire to get our choke points set up before reinforcements arrived, and to get something solid between us and Gravis's fight with the zoanthrope. Honestly, we hadn't taken the Space Marine too seriously up to that point. I mean, we respected him and found him daunting as fucking hell, but his combat performance in the last drop hadn't been up to the stories you hear about Space Marines. His fight with the Tyranid Psyker, though, that was something to tell your grandkids about. In a few seconds, we saw him fighting before we got undercover. Sergeant Gravis baited out and dodged three massive lightning bolts, scored twice as many hits on the Xenos' shield bubble, and generally moved with more speed and grace than should have been conceivably possible for something that big and heavy. Abstractly, we'd known that the Emperor's Sides chapter were the best experts available when it came to fighting Tyranids, but watching Gravis play that zoanthrope like a fiddle really drove it home. We all would have stopped to spectate if the zoanthrope's misses weren't blowing the rocks near us into red-hot shrapnel. Anyway, we all got the hell off that hilltop and into the good position. Spot stayed up high and gave us a good view of the incoming reinforcements as we set our minds and found the best lines of fire. We all finished our preparations just in time and started mowing down the first wave of Tyranids as they climbed the hill. The first wave was nothing but the gaunts, both varieties. That had been near the hill, thanks to the wonderful nature of choke points, not to mention good firing positions and techno-heretically awesome weapons, we were able to kill them all before they managed to shoot a claws. That's not to say that we actually killed all of the Tyranids. Nids don't tend to run out of bodies to throw at a problem, but we did convince them to rethink their strategy. Once the choke points were 
to, well, choked with their bodies to get any more past, the gaunts broke off the way for heavier reinforcements. Now, we'd been in this sort of fight with ninja before. Back when we were actually in the guard, we'd fought a mem memorable and debatably successful defensive battle against the bugs, so we knew what would almost certainly come next. Warriors, possibly with Ravenor or... Ravener, not Ravenor. Ravener or Gargoyle support. On our respective sides of the hill, Amy, Nubby, and Tink all moved to elevated positions and helped spot watch for the higher life forms. Meanwhile, those of us still on the ground made sure the mines in our next positions were ready. When Sarge checked in with Gravis and his scout, the Marines were still working on wearing down the Zoanthrope shield without killing it, and asked us not to distract them again. We all made some rather unkind comments about the last part, but refrained from transmitting any of them. Spot the one to drone, tagged the second wave on its way in, and as we'd guessed, there'd been, there were some warriors directing the charge be, from behind the initial meat shield. Excuse me, the guard has a standard combat doctrine for pretty much every situation. While most of these are not very individual guardsmen friendly, the the one for that sort of attack is a good one. So for once, we did things by the book. Admittedly, said book is rather short, but that just means it's easy to remember. The three of us that had moved into sniper positions held our fired and prepared to shoot the big one first. On Doc and Tank's flank, an overcharged Tau laser thingy guided plasma bolt turned their warrior into chunky salsa. Over on Amy and Twitches, a precision headshot from our actually quite talented markswoman took out theirs. With the synapse creatures dead, the gaunts lo lost cohesion, and both pairs of guardsmen easily mowed them down. Unfortunately, the sniper on our third flank was Nubby, who didn't have Tank's anti-armor weapon or Amy's accuracy. Very angry, if burnt and bloody, Tyranid Warrior immediately returned fire with one of those big B-gun things, pinning Nubby down on his sniper perch. Sarge tried to hold off the incoming wave himself, using heavy use of his grenades and the choke point, but it quickly became apparent it wasn't going to work. Sarge calmed the rest of us, and over Nubby's shrill screaming, act if anyone could give him support for it to blow his minds and relocate. The rest of us were still rather busy with our mop-ups. Reinforcing Sarge meant crossing the Zoanthrope-infested hilltop, so we all declined. It seemed like Sarge was going to have to give his flank safety margin, and he was getting ready to blow his mind and pull Nubby out. When the scout marine told him to hold on just a little longer, Sarge managed it. He wound up having to use his boots and to keep a especially persistent gaunt off of him while he reloaded, and his armor and beacon has barely saved him for a few flesh borer hits, but he managed it. Right as things were getting downright dire, the warrior and several nearby gaunts went down to an amazing display of precision shooting. Nubby finally got his ass out of cover and helped Sarge turn the tide back as the scout returned to the, the Zoanthrope fight. Things were looking pretty good, even if we could see the third wave mustering near the bottom of the hill. Good changed to great when we heard Gravis say the Zoanthrope shield was almost down. And then everything went to shit. Looking back, it's not that hard to spot the exact moment when the shifting of the everything occurred. Actually, it wasn't that hard to spot at the time, either. Within uh, 20 seconds of it happening, we knew what had gone wrong and why, but it took a bit longer for all the horrible results of that one screw-up to manifest. Anyway, what started what whole, that whole horrible, god-awful shit show was a simple communications failure at a rather hectic moment. The third wave of Tyrannus was coming in, we were busy shooting them and getting ready to blow our minds and fall back. Up on top of the hill, Sergeant Gravis had the zone throw up on the ropes and was ordering a scout to get ready to trank it. The scout marine had just returned from helping Sarge and was perched on one of the pointy pillars on top of the hill. As the scout got the trank ready and lined up what must have been a rather tricky shot, he spotted something and calmed us. His exact words were, Interrogator, incoming Tyranid assault flyer, north side. 
Now let's do an experiment. First, go out and find 50,000 guardsmen. Actually, go out and get 100. It's not like guardsmen are hard to find. Hell, we're literally the first, the largest organized fighting force in the galaxy, which kind of means the definition of standard response to anything is what we do, not what a few bloody crazy stomping on power armor you're going to eat by bug. Anyway, ask any of those guardsmen what they will do when someone warns them hostile air units are incoming. Nothing else. No details or orders, just hostile air incoming. You know what they'll say? It'll be the same regardless of regiment, specialization, rank, or anything. Every single one of them will tell you the same thing. They will get the hell into fucking cover. Apparently, the Emperor's Scythe chapter of the Space Marines aren't on the same page as the rest of us, though. Or at least that Scout Marine wasn't. I mean, if he'd just been a little more clear, if he'd added just a few more bloody words, like, take it out or cover me, or even if he just shortened it to incoming assault, we would have understood. But no, he told us there was a flyer incoming, and stood there with his ass hanging out, wrongly believing that we'd shoot it down while he lined his shot on the Zoanthrope. Nubby was the first one to notice the impending disaster. Well, actually, he just saw the, sc the scout standing there and told the Sarge that the stupid bastard's gonna get his ass shut off. Sarge stared for a second and then peeked out of cover and saw what sort of flyer was incoming. Everything started to click together. The incoming Tyranid wasn't some dedicated air bioform designed to stray for bomb ground targets. It was the biggest, meanest melee monstrosity in the, in the swarm. Or at least... The biggest one that was still capable of flight. It was a flyrent, a winged hive tyrant, the tyranid equivalent of a Lord General crossed with a main battle tank with some wings strapped on it for good measure. It was big, it was pissed, and it was coming right at the only member of our team that was standing out in the open. Unfortunately, Charge was just a little too late. By the time he started shouting his warning, nearly five tons of flying tyranid hit the scout marine in the back. You know how in cartoons, a bus or a train hits someone, they just sort of vanish? It was exactly like that, right down to how the poor bastard's sniper rifle was left pinwheeling in the air for a second. In the aftermath, three things became apparent. The scout had not gotten his shot off. The physically exhausted Zoanthrope was doing a runner, and Gravis had bigger problems than chasing it. The Space Marine told us that the Zoanthrope was fleeing towards Sarge, asked us to catch it, and started shouting about some place called Sotha. A second later, the tyrant let out a scream that shook the entire hilltop. The situation was bad, but it was also, thank the Emperor, relatively simple. We had a perimeter to maintain, a high tyrant to survive, and a zoanthrope to catch. Sarge started bellowing out orders, and the rest of us scrambled to follow them. Since we had still all of our marines in place, the perimeter was actually the least pressing issue. Sarge's first order was to fall back to the top of the hill and let the explosives hold off the sp smaller tyranids for a while. Sars then told us he was going after the Zoanthrope and sent Nubby to gather the scout's trank-loaded sniper rifle. The rest of us, Sarge's final orders were a little bit more freeform. Tink was to get his drone on the Hive Tyrant, and the rest of us were told to handle it. Seriously, this was his entire master plan. By the Emperor! There's a bloody Hive Tyrant inside our perimeter! It's killed one Space Marine, and as soon as it fishes off the other, it'll kill us all! What should we do, sir? Handle it. He never managed to live that one down. The ridiculous of that miss of that order aside, it's not like we actually needed one. Each of us knew that the only way we'd live through this was if the tyrant was dead. 
forced to retreat, or kept distracted long enough for us to call and board the shuttle. All three of these possible solutions could be accomplished by the same way, by shooting the big bug and running away if it chased us. Some variations in improv could be thrown in as things progress, but shoot and run was really the core strategy. Even the space frame was doing it, though more stab and run in his case. The first of us to actually see the hive tyrant up close were Amy and Twitch. As they ran up towards the hilltop, Sergeant Gravis started coming down in these big graceful leaps made possible by its grav shoot. Valiant heroes of the Imperium that both of them were, they immediately scrambled to find hiding places as the massive Tyrant had charged down after Gravis. Both of them held their fire, not to mention their breaths, and observed what they could. The Flyrant was, of course, a winged bipedal bug that, stuck, that stood six meters tall and was made of distilled murder and hate. But it was also it also had a few important distinguishing points. It had four arms, well, three-ish after Gravis had gotten its attention. <clears throat> the top one and a half ended in the usual Tyranid talons. The bottom pair held a massive bone sword and had one of those freaky sentient whip things. Each of those weapons were capable of massively killing any poor guardsmen that gotten close, but none of them had real range. That was a very good thing for us, but not so much for Gravis, though. Speaking of Sergeant Kravis, he was coming down the hill fast, but the flyer was gaining. He didn't have much room left to run before he hit Twitch and Amy's minefield. Right as it looked like he was going to try jumping over it and then wading through the incoming wave of nids, he suddenly reversed direction. All three of the Flyrans' attacks missed the Space Marine, as with more speed and agility than anyone arguing with the equivalent of a light tank should have, he dodged between the beast's legs. It was impressive as hell, especially the part where he got in a whack with his power sword on his way through. Both Amy and Twitch watched appreciatively until they realized the Flyrant wasn't going to be able to stop. The 4.9-ton Tyranid flailed its wings in a mad attempt to get airborne, completely failed to do so, and plowed through over a dozen AP mines. Twitch and Amy barely made it into new cover in time. Matt? I have returned. Read. Of course, it takes more than a few AP mines to kill a hive tyrant. Aside from shredding its wings, all they really seemed to do was piss it the hell off. The tyrant let out another of its piercing shrieks as it reversed direction and started pulling back up the hill after Gravis. Twitch and Amy watched it go, then realized they had a bit of a problem. Namely, that there was no longer much of a minefield between them and the wave of smaller tyranids. The debate over what to do consisted of Amy and Twitch pointing in opposite directions, yelling, Handle it! at each other, then splitting up. Twitch ran around, dropping the last of his mines and spraying fire at the incoming gaunts. Amy sprinted up the hill after Gravis and the fly rat, hip-firing her pulse rifle at the massive target until it crested the hill and she lost line of sight. When Amy reached the top of the hill, she found Sergeant Gravis carefully circling around the enraged fly rat while Doc and Tink shot it. Like the other two guardsmen, she sighted on the tau marker thingy spot was projecting on the Tyranid and pointed out as much, poured out as much fire as she could. It was beginning to look like the three of them were able to wear the creature down. Then Gravis botched one of his dodges. The space marine had to choose between trying to block the Flyron's bone sword or dying a horrible death, and reluctantly chose the former. For the second time that day, he flew through the air with all the grace and aerodynamics of a thrown fucking brick. Sergeant Gravis ricocheted off of one of the stone spires encircling the hilltop, briefly tumbling upwards, then crashed into the dirt directly behind Tink and Talk. Doc and Tink. He was a tough bastard, though. Within a second of his landing, started moving again. Both the Space Marine and his armor groaned as he struggled to get back on his feet. The Flyrant let out yet another roar sighted on the recovering space marine and charged. Alright, our reading order is out of whack now. Who's, okay, you go next. Yeah, um, yeah, well, I'll read and then, then we'll I'll start from the back to the normal order. Yeah. 
Now in your normal commissariat-approved uplifting story of heroism, this is where our two stalwart guardsmen would have stood their ground and laid down their lives to buy the wounded space marine time to recover. Then right after the guardsmen had finished valiantly sacrificing themselves, he would have magically gotten better and killed the vile Xenos. Oh, and then all the orcs and tyrannids on the planet would have died, and it would be the whole place had turned into a garden world that paid all of its tithes on time. There'd be statues of the heroic dead guardsmen everywhere. The warp take those stories, and whoever keeps writing them, and the whole commissariat for that matter. Ever notice how it's always some guardsman and ever the commissar who dies horribly in the Emperor's name? Anyways, Doc and Tink took one look at the charging flyrant and ran for it. Okay, I realize that sounds bad, but it's not like they ran down the hill and let, left Gravis to die. They kept firing and ran perpendicularly along the top of the hill in, and I quote the official report here, an attempt to draw the Hive Tyrant's attention away from its target. Anyways, it's not like they would have accomplished anything by standing there, and there was no way either of them could have carried a fully armored space marine to safety. My point is what happened next was not Doc's, Tink's, or anyone else's fault. And I'll have you know that the Tribunal of Senior Order Xenos Inquisitors who reviewed Spot's footage agreed with that assessment. Well, two-thirds of the Tribunal, anyway. So while three of us poured a hell a lot of plasma into the flyrun, it closed to melee range with Sergeant Kravis. He parried the beast's whip thing, sidestepped the strike from its single ring talon, and did that trick where he dodged with legs again. Whereupon the flyrant turned, brought its bone sword around a mid-chest level, and cut Sergeant Gravis in half. Twitch finished laying his replacement myfield, and arrived on the hilltop right then, as did Sergeant Nubby, who were lugging the trank to Zoanthrope between them. Their part of what could be generously called the plan hadn't involved anything as terrifying as the flyrant, but it hadn't been a cakewalk either. Sarge managed to sight the fleeing Zoanthrope as it came down the hill towards him. It turned out even when too exhausted to keep itself hovering, the psyker bugs are capable of wriggling along the ground at a surprisingly high speed. While Nubby hunted down the scout's dropped rifle in his trank round, Sarge chased the zone throw back and forth between the rocks, dodging the occasional weak lightning bolt and stray flesh bore around as he did so. Eventually, he cornered the beastie between two spires, right as Nubby arrived with the comically oversized Astartes pattern sniper rifle. Since it quickly became apparent that Nubby was completely incapable of aiming the damn thing, and the Zoanthrope was still squirming around a lot, Sarge decided to take the damn shot himself. The second he was distracted, the bug tried to escape again, and Sarge wound up tackling it and pinning it to the ground. It was like wrestling a cross between a greased pig, a giant snake, and an uninsulated power conduit. In the end, he collected a few scratches, a nasty bite wound, and a whole lot of electrical burns before Nubby just dragged the fucking rifle over and jammed it in the Zoanthrope's underbelly. Then they hauled the surprisingly long and heavy Xenos up to the hilltop, pausing to chuck a few grenades at the incoming wave of Nid reinforcements on the way, and got there just in time to see Gravis's bisection. There was a brief silence, which was punctuated by two meaty thuds in Nubby's nasal voice. Daddy, shit. Think he's gonna be okay? Then the flyant roared again, and all six of us just had to open fire. Spot was projecting its Tau laser thingy on the middle of the Flyrant's torso, and we all sighted our weapons on it and held the triggers down. Looking back, it's hard to say whether it was the sheer weight of fire, the big bastard was just running out of energy, but its charge towards us was much slower than its earlier ones had been. Every single one of us got an entire magazine's worth of shots out before the Flyrant was a third of the way to Sarge and Nubby. It never made it to two-thirds, there was sort of a squelchy pop, and its torso armor gave away, and the beast stumbled, sort of huddled there, trying to protect its wounded chest, and then sent out a screech that was echoed by smaller tyrannids climbing the hill. From the sound of it, they were finally getting past their minefields, and would be arriving in seconds. None of us went to hold off the incoming reinforcements, though. The flyer was the de- very definition of the big one. We were going to shoot it first. 
spot redirected its marker light to the Zenith's head. Not that we actually needed the fancy top flashlight, though. Even if the flyer's head was a relatively small target, it was a stationary one now. Every shot we fired hit. Within seconds, our mass plasma fire either punched through the Tyranid's head armor or cooked the thing's brain to the boiling point. Its head exploded like a particularly disgusting grenade, and a psychic pressure that none of us had even noticed was released. All around the hilltop, the incoming Tyranids broke and fled as quickly as they could, and the Zoanthrope twitched a little where Sergeant Nubby had dropped it. Let me tell you, we'd escaped near certain death before, but the relief we all felt in the barren hilltop was the greatest in our lives. Every one of us just stood there and basked in the sheer joy of still being alive. Then Tank spoiled it by asking if Gravis had called the shuttle before he died. Tink's question was followed by the sound of a few thousand orc waaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaa
immediately regretted that decision. So Sarge was wearing the helmet and explaining things to the shuttle pilot. Twitch was being Twitch, and since it looked like we actually wouldn't all be left stranded in the middle of an army of orcs, both Nubby and Amy decided it was fine to take a breather. They sat on the Trank Zoanthrope, shared a pack of low sticks, and enjoyed the sight of Doc freaking the hell out and shaking Tink like a terrier with a rat. Oh, God! Oh, no, no, I don't know, let's fix him or something. Stop shaking me. Oh, Tink! How do you fix being good? This should never be alive. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how space breeds work. What if touching a base is not working? What am I doing? Um, um, uh, do the, do the space marine thing. What thing? Harvest the gene seed. Is what? Sheen seed. It's this like seed thing that space marines have. If you pull it out before a marine dies, you can you can uh plant it in a servitory and he grows back from it. <laughs> yeah, they had this whole thing in the last season where Brother Captain Mark is the cooperator fell in battle and the Fire Warrior rescue team had the Wait, you mean you fucking tell you're basing this off of heretical cartoons? They're not cartoons, they're not heretical, and do you have anything better? Shit, 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 the what, what is this gene seed, what does it look like, and where the fuck is it? Oh, uh, they had to censor the part where they cut it out, but I, I, I think it was like a second heart thing, and it was heart, green and stuff. Heart, heart thing, like, like it's in his chest? Yeah, right in the middle. Okay. In the chest, the, the, the upper or the lower chest? The, um, the, the upper or lower the, chest? If I'm gonna be digging around inside of him, I at least need to know which fucking end of him to dig in! I don't know, why don't you go check out on the scout? Do, do I read this one, then uh, Jacob read we, the green text, we, or what, what are, are we doing continuing here? this? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess you guys are continuing this. Here, well, we'll flip, we'll flip. The scout marine was pinned to the hilltop's ground a few dozen meters away from where he'd been perching when the flyer hit him. I'm using pinned quite literally here. He was face down with a tear in the town the size of a beefy telephone pole through his fucking back. The talon ended in a very neat cut that matched the stump the flyer had, which probably explained how Gravis had gotten his attention. Unlike Gravis, there wasn't much confusion over whether the scout was dead. He started to go runny. It's not like all of him was melting, just a sort of expanding area around where he'd been speared. Said area, uh, including both the upper and lower chest, though. In the name of medical science, Doc poked at the mushy corpse with a probe, then jumped backwards with a girly shout when it started to hiss and melt, too. Emperor, I swear he wasn't doing that earlier. Is this like a space marine thing? Do, th do they... Do they melt when they die? You don't think so. Wouldn't make it hard to reuse the armor? Bet you it's a Ned thing. Does your big book a suit of scientific medical bullshit of a section on tyrant bioweapons? Um, um, uh, tyrant, 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 tyrant. Oh, um, bone sword, scything, tile, toxic sacks! Yeah, neat. What's it say? If in fully stocked field hospital, laboratorium, quarantine. Here! Battlefield instructions. Smear area with counterseptic, administer oral detox, scan and apply. Indicated toxin wands give plasma prey to the emperor. <gasps> I can do all of those. Wait, wait, wait. Like plasma from a gun or a bag? What about the gene seed, though? Screw your gene seed. If we can keep him from melting until the shuttle arrives, we can ask the pilot. Now take these and go to his bottom half. These are pills, Doc. How do I give a pair of legs pills? How do you think? 
Oh god. Oh, oh no, I'm not qualified for this. Well, neither am I. Now do it! Doc's panic medical treatments were of rather dubious usefulness, especially the part where he fed a detox tab to the nearly dead space marine. That stuff is nearly enough to kill you on its own, and it made the big guy flail around and spurt some nasty stuff out the end of his torso. At least it proved that he was still alive, stopping the whole not really breathing thing. Also, Doc put more fluid back in and sealed off most of the leaky exposed torso area, so it's probably a net gain for Gravis. We all watched him running around and yelling at Tink, who was stuck with a literal ass end of the job, while the sound of the oncoming orcs grew steadily louder. It came in his immense relief when the shuttle dr was dropped out of the clouds. Uh, and you better believe that we were lined up and ready to board before it hit the ground. Pilot wasn't exactly on the same page as the rest of us, though. He didn't stay in his seat and keep the engine spun up. Instead, he was standing at the rear hatch when it opened. None of us had actually seen the pilot on our flight in, and that was the that first meeting was rather unpleasant. He was a scout marine and looked nearly identical to the other guy, except for not being impaled and dissolving. He was also considerably worse the whole stoicism thing. The pilot stood in our way and demanded to know what had happened to Sergeant Gravis and Rubrum, which was a sort of awkward since none of us had actually bothered to learn the dead scout marine's name. Anyway, the pilot did not take the sergeant's vice action well and nearly went berserk when he saw his buddy's rifle sticking out of Nubby's pack. The outermost mines were going off at this point. None of us wanted to die on the landing pad. The sergeant acted rather cruelly. He yanked the Legiamen Baliful savage out of salvage out of Nubby's pack, thrust in the pilot's arms, and said the scout wanted him to have it, and then pointed out that his boss was going to die if we don't take off right now. We didn't have any problems securing the zone throughout for takeoff. The snaky Xenos was still completely out of it and fit right into one of the oversized seats. Gravis was a bit of a problem, though. Doc wound up trapping him upside down in one of the seats, supposedly because it let him tighten the crash harness and would keep everything from falling out if the bandage gave way. None of us knew enough to argue, so we went with the same gross end-up theory for his lower half, which was put in the seat next to him. During the strapping-in process, Gravis' sword, bolter, and other little weapons and gadgets disappeared into Nubby's backpack. Thankfully, the pilot was too busy taking off and dodging small arms fire from the incoming orcs to see a single fucking thing of this. After we were out of the orcs' range, our ascent out of the atmosphere went comfortably enough. Sarge sat in the relative peacefulness and inspected us troops. In addition to his ample supply of lacerations and electrical burns, we'd collected a concussion, a fairly nasty leg wound, a broken nose, some cracked ribs, nearly a dozen minor flesh borer hits, and an orc juice marinade. We were all still alive, though, and we had Oak's Zoanthrope, too. So all in all, we called it a damn win. Sure, our space marines had taken one hell of a beating, but we'd completed our objective and horrible sacrifices in the name of victory, what space marines are all about. I mean, we'd been attacked by a bloody hive tyrant and two marines for a tyrant is a pretty good trade. Anyways, being to look like Gravis might just survive long enough to get into a real Medicaid. So yeah, only a win. We were in the middle of congratulating ourselves and speculating on if Gravis would be put in a dreadnought when three things happened. First, the zoanthrope started twitching. Then, Gravis' armor started beeping, and his lower half began to smoke. And finally, the helmet and Sarge's lap started talking. His cock is smoking. Damn. So now shit, there we were, sneaking across a war zone with a slowly awakening Tyranid Psyker and a quickly dying Space Marine when Sergeant Rebus called for his evac. If you actually needed proof that the entire purpose of the universe is to shit on poor, hard-working guardsmen, It'd be damn hard to find something better than the timing right here. I mean, just to remind you, this wasn't some simple pickup from a combat zone he needed. No, 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 no. He needed us to sneak back into the boarding range of a tiered hive ship, which was still being assaulted by a few million orc fighters, to pick him up before the high-yield vortex bomb he just planted went off. 
you could say that we weren't the ones doing the actual sneaking, that we'd been safely through before without the Iron Vortex bomb, of course, but this, t- this time it would be a race against a Zoanthrope waking up and Sergeant Grav is melting. Every man has their limit, and this is well beyond ours. Before the pilot could respond, Sarge Pony grasped his helmet and calmly, clearly told the Space Marine to wait his damn turn. All of us, except for Doc, who was rather busy, cheered. Sergeant Rebus and the pilot were less enthusiastic. The argument that followed included accusations of cowardice, the pilot coming out of the cockpit with a bolter and threatening to either kill us or the Zoanthrope, and Sarge telling one of the Emperor's Angels of Death to shut up and soldier, soldier. In the end, a combination of devotion to the mission and desire to save his sergeant won the pilot to our side. Sergeant Rebus was instructed to delay the bomb detonation and hold out until we were dropped off and a return trip could be made. The, sar- the conversation ended with Rebus bitterly complaining that dying waiting for the evac was an end worthy of a guardsman. Sarge responded by telling him that holding the line wasn't that hard. After all, us guardsmen did it all the time. Uh, now it might sound that we callously doomed a team of valiant space marines to their deaths, but we really weren't delaying their extraction that long. The marines had prepared for this type of situation when they'd adjusted their mission plan to account for only having one shuttle. The occurrence border had followed our stealthy little vessel into the system as quietly as it could, and now that it was close enough that it would be a matter of minutes, not hours to reach it, of course, being that close meant there was a significant risk of detection, and the occurrence border didn't have any real way to hold off and, and attack and hold off an attack by the orcs of the Nids. Back at the briefing, Rebus had claimed it was acceptable risk, though, which goes to show you what a bloody tactical genius he was. Okay, maybe that's a little unfair. Having the ship closer turned out to be very good for him. It's not like he could have foreseen that we can't capture the Zoanthrope, but forget to bring about the second dose of that special psych tranquilizer stuff. Though if he spared the blame, then that means that Gravis and his scout deserve a little for not taking the excessively simple precaution of leaving a few spare doses in the shuttle. I mean, we were going into extremely hostile territory. Why was that scout carrying all the tranks? And why hadn't either of them told us a second dose would be needed? Is Tyranid wrangling some super secret Emperor's sides only technique? Or did they think that there was no way to survive and continue the mission if they didn't? Well, actually, the that one is completely understandable. Arrogant is all hell, but understandable. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. Zoanthrope was a problem later. At the time, our big concern was that half of Gravis was dying and the other half was violently decomposing. Once again, the task was divided between Doc and Tink. This time, Doc was much, 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 much calmer. His response was surprisingly reasonable and professional. He fussed around the upside-down space marine torso with his medical scanner and tox wands and shouted questions about Astartes' biology and power armor automated Medicaid systems to the pilot. There was some rather confusing talk about illicit kidneys, biomedical cogitators, and cellular regenerator reservoirs, which the rest of us fucking ignored because Tink's part of the job was a complete shit show. Whatever was on the flyer and sword, when it got going, it really got going. Ravis's lower half went from fine to melting from the wound down in mere seconds. It's hard to say whether Tink's response was best, was the best or the worst one available, but it was certainly the most disgusting. In an effort to slow down the process, he unbuckled the power-armored legs and flipped them upside down. The smoldering bandage immediately gave way and dumped a horrible combination of meat juice, xenos toxins, and extremely powerful acid onto the seat. The smell was beyond vile, and all of us had to put on our respirators, just our rebreathers just to stay conscious, which was lucky considering how many airborne toxins were found in that shuttle when we landed. So after the spillage started dissolving the seat, the rest of us became very interested in helping Tink, of course, none of us knew jack about biochemistry, so we were only able to offer what might be called mechanical solutions to the acid problem. Most of those suggestions were absolutely terrible. 
In the end, we settled on the traditional occurrence border technique of shoving it out the airlock and hoping it needed oxygen and heat to keep doing whatever it was doing. That's why, when we finally docked the current border, our shovel's hole was decorated by a pair of legs being gripped by Spot the Wonder Drone. It says something that none of the people waiting in the bay even decided to comment on it a single time. <clears throat> Take it away. The occurrence border had been warned of the time-sensitive nature of our cargo, and the welcoming party was well prepared. Doc's hospitality girlfriend and her minions were ready to... Ready with a bunch of scary-looking medical gear and a sort of big goo-filled container. Grab his legs and the tink's whore. Spot were immediately pried off the hole, cramped into the giant pickle jar, and hauled off before we even made it out of the shuttle. What did I miss, by the way? I was doing something. No, okay. So they, so they were in the they were in the ship, going back. And uh, well, um, have you ever uh, accidentally? had the top of a ketchup bottle just pop off while you're while you're trying to pour who pours ketchup not pour ketchup but like squirt the ketchup out of the bottle <laughs> and it, it yeah. just pops off um yeah well that happened to uh the space marines legs mm, yummy and uh it got all over the seat and it was a biohazard and awful and terrible and, I like uh, the dog picture going. Oliver tries to catch the water from the from the sprinkler, and Bo just fucking eats it. That's really funny. Doc was the first one on the ramp. With Tink's help, he deposited Gravis on a waiting gurney, then turned to his girlfriend and went for a hug and a quick kiss. He didn't get either, and so she screamed at him to keep his rebreather on posed him with a chemical sprayer, and then ordered him to go through a full decontamination and meet her in the med bay. Doc stood there and dripped for a second, and dejectedly jogged after his departing girlfriend. Those of us who weren't struggling to get the zoanthrope out of the, sh the shuttle je -be 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 -be, chuckled at this, at least until a pair of sprayer-armed minions started hosing us as well. We'd all been thoroughly soaked by the time we got the zoanthrope out of its seat and loaded into the cargo trolley Hannah had waiting for us. Sprayers then moved on hosing the shuttle's interior, but before they could get much done, their rear hatch slammed shut and the engines kicked back on. In clear violation of all safety procedures, the pilot rocketed out of the bay before we cleared the area. As he left, the pilot commented, calmed us and promised vengeance if Gravis didn't survive. And from our from the helmet sergeant was still carrying, we overheard him giving his ETA to Sergeant Rebus. We silently wished him luck and then turned to the serious business of getting our zone thrift stored in the Psyker containment cells. The zoanthrope hadn't been any trouble during the unloading process. That's because it was, uh, because it had come almost fully awake while we were still ten minutes out, and we had to do something about it. Initially, we'd hoped that this far away from the Archernids in the hive ship had revert to being a dumb beast. Acting on this theory, when the zoanthrope started clawing at its straps and manifesting small bowls of electricity, Sarge attempted to establish superiority by punching it in the snout. That did not work. This just makes me think of the the, the Tyranids as like sharks, and you can just like pat their nose and just. Flip them, flip them around when they're not uh, yeah. near the hive ship. Plan B was to hit it with one of the guard-issued Trank and Painkiller Surrettes from Doc's kit. It's not like he was using them anyway. When that didn't work, we went with Plan C, which was to keep applying Plans A and B until they did work. After a fair amount of punching and enough Tranks to kill three men, the uppity Xeno Psyker finally went back to sleep. Disturbingly, though, the shuttle was still filled with little snaps of static, and we all felt a sort of ominous pressure in the air. We tried to call the Xenologist Adept back on the ship to get his opinions on that, but our comms had a surprisingly surprising amount of trouble, so we settled on asking him to meet us in the bay. 
The adept was waiting next to Hannah, and we loaded the zoanthrope onto the pellet. He took note of the minor phenomena, as well as the empty surrets that we'd left sticking in the xenos. After processing this for a second, he began yelling at us to go faster, which was immensely unhelpful, since we were all out running him until he got the pellet himself. The part where he called ahead to warn the psycho cells and asked Fumbles to meet us halfway was more useful, though, so we forgave him. Picture, if you will, a cargo pallet racing down the corridors of a spaceship. It is occupied by a large, unconscious Xenos that looks like a cross between a snake and a fetus. A slightly overweight man in robes and a guardsman with an injured leg. The guardsman is holding a wrench that is connected to a random tangle of wires, which has been hung over the Xenos. As the pallet races along, he's using the wrench to ground increasingly larger bursts of inexplicably green electricity against the floor and walls. Behind the pallet are a terrified bunch of tech priestesses, tech priests, and a burly guardsman who looks like he'd recently crawled through a burning razor blade factory. Both of them are pushing the pallet as fast as they can through the maze-like series of corridors that make up the ship. Every twist and turn requires a frantic effort to change the heavy pallet's direction, and occasionally one of the pushers will misjudge, slam into a wall or doorframe, and then have to scramble to catch back up. A fair distance ahead of the pallet are two guardsmen. One is wiry and wreathed with explosives, the other is short and lugging a backpack packed near to bursting. They're screaming at people to get out of the corridors, applying indiscriminate force when necessary, and opening the various doors and hatches the pallet needs to go through. A little bit behind them is a guard's woman who could be defined as regal-looking if she wasn't completely filth-encrusted. She's pausing at corners and relaying upcoming direction changes to the pallet's pushers. So this parade of panic made its way through nearly half a kilometer of ship corridors, trailing confusion and technical failures behind it, but didn't really get bad until right at the halfway point, when Fumbles suddenly, godlessly stepped out of a side hatch into the path of the onrushing pallet. A second later, he was face down on top of the zoanthrope, clutching his badly bruised shins and screaming with all the force he had at the top of his lungs. Not being a psyker, I can't really say what Fumbles did during that mad scramble. From our perspective, he sort of just lay there and gibbered, and later on claimed not to remember any of it. He was probably doing something really important, like keeping the zone throw from doing stuff while it was unconscious or hiding us from the hive mind. Chances are that without him doing his thing, we would have died horribly before we got to the holding cells. We didn't really appreciate that at the time, though. All we noticed was how immensely inconvenient Fumbles made the rest of our journey. After Fumbles arrived, in addition to the electricity thrown off by the sleeping zoanthrope, I can't read right now, sorry, we had to deal with freak indoor snowstorms, a few instances of spontaneously, spontaneous gravity reversal, and all sorts of creepy noises and visions. On two occasions, the effects were so bad, the Sarge considered dumping the accident-prone Psyker off the pallet and leaving him behind, but the Xenologist adept insisted that he stay. Luckily, Hannah's augmentics didn't take that long to start working again after they spontaneously locked up, and the minor demon only made three steps in before a combination of pulse fire and what might have been called a power wrench turned it into chunky salsa. Despite all the complications, we made incredibly good time on our mad sprint, covering something like a kilometer in just under six minutes. That wasn't quite fast enough, though. We'd reached the final stretch and could see Jim holding the door open, and then an ominous sort of psychic pressure we'd been feeling suddenly ratcheted up. As the pressure mounted, Fumbles gibbered something like, It sees, it knows, it hungers, and then the entire corridor filled with a torrential downpour of blood. Everything slowed to a crawl as the first drop of blood hit Sarge's face. Memories of two psychers in a cargo bay fitted through his mind, and he slowly began to reach towards Fumbles. Then, everything exploded. Sir Joe? There were actually two explosions. The first was a sort of psychic concussion. 
For the second reign of for the second, the rain of blood paused in midair. Then there was a crack of energy and a wave of force radiated outwards from Fumbles. It was strongest at its epicenter. All three of the pallet's human passengers were thrown off. Tink and the Adepo slammed into the corridor's walls while Fumbles flew upward, inexplicably stuck to the ceiling for a second, then flopped to the floor with an unpleasant splash. Behind the pallet, Sarge saw the wave coming and rather gallantly pushed Hannah behind him. This did not have the intended result. The wave hit Sarge and over 100 kilos of cyclically propelled non-com slammed into Hannah. This in turn results in the both of them tumbling backwards landing into a heap. Unfortunately, Sarge on the top nearly crushing the poor cog girl, he probably would have died of embarrassment if it weren't for the fact that all five human projectiles were left unconscious by the blast. The final effect of the second concussion was to blow out all the lights in the corridor. Twitch, Nubby, and Amy activated their shoulder-mounted lights and watched through the rain of blood as the pallet sloshed to a halt. The three of them held position and kept their weapons trained on the zone throw, until Jim shouted Hannah's name and began to run past them. Now, Nubby casually stuck out a foot and tricked the panicked cog boy, then followed Amy and Twitch as they began to move towards the pallet. Their cautious advance nearly reached the pallet when the Zoanthrope suddenly jerked into the air. It hung there for a second, like some sort of horrible giant puppet being hangled up, held up by tangled strings. The second explosion shook up the entire ship, the whole world went green, and Amy started screaming. It was a bit of a surprise to find ourselves alive after that. Nubby and Twitch stood there in the ankle-deep blood, shielding their eyes against the bright green light and watching Amy who was screaming and wildly firing her pulse rifle with the Zoanthrope's glowing energy shield. Guardsmen that they were, both of them quickly raised their own weapons and started firing as well. And after a few seconds, they noticed that something was quite weird. The Zoanthrope was not fighting back. There were no lightning bolts or soul-rending screeches. And on closer inspection, it didn't even appear to be awake. Of course, it wasn't until Theo came out of where he'd been hiding in the cells, helped Jim to his feet, and asked whether the plan was to still to capture the Zoanthrope alive that they considered not shooting the Xenos. Everyone except Amy, who was too busy hysterically shooting at the Zoanthrope to talk, put their heads together to figure out what to do. While the Zoanthrope may not have been attacking, the psychic pressure had gone from ominous to outright painful. So the debate was a very short one. The second, a halfway reasonable suggestion was put forward, they all leapt into action, though Twitch and Nubby both bitterly complained that it was the non-human who made the plan. Well, plan is a very grandiose term. They wanted to get the Zoanthrope into the stalls, but no one wanted to touch the sparking green shield. So Theo had made the stereotypically Tao suggestion of using drones. He and Jim had sent a small swarm of servo skulls and clutched together tau drones behind the Zoanthrope and had them start ramming its shield in an attempt to hurt it towards the door. Nubby and Twitch contributed by getting Amy to stop shooting it and making sure no one was drowning in the warp blood. The plan was decent, but had a major problem. It was too slow. The skulls and drones didn't have that much pushing power to begin with, and the electrical nature of the Zoanthrope's shield was frying them one by one. It was a race against the psychic pressure mounting to lethal levels, and we were losing. None of us had any other ideas, though, and things probably would have gone poorly if Amy hadn't finally snapped out of her PTSD-inspired violent freakout. When Amy returned to coherence, she took one look at how slow it was, uh, how slow the pallet was going, cussed everyone out for being useless sissies, and seized a forgotten pallet. She ran towards the zoanthrope, building up as much speed as the blood allowed and this last second levered the pallet on the two wheels and used it as a sort of poorly balanced battering ram it worked surprisingly well with nubby and twitch's help another two blows got the zone throw up to the door of the psychic containment cells where the problem of how to fit a three meter energy bubble through a two meter wide door presented itself this was solved by the arrival of sergeant tink who finally finished up their naps and decided it was time to actually be useful while Jim and Fio, who weren't quite as stubborn as us guardsmen, argued about whether it was possible to widen the door without damaging something or other, we backed to the end of the corridor. 
We picked the pallet up like a more traditional battering ram, Sarge positioned himself at the end, and then we charged. Jim and Fio's debate was brought to a halt as, the, as a widely sparking Xenos psyker shot between them bounced off a few pieces of delicate machinery and neatly slid into the waiting stasis unit. The techie slapped various on buttons and the terrible psychic pressure vanished. Out of the corridor, one of the, those of us who hadn't broken anything in the charge cheered, but our enthusiasm dwindled as every comm terminal in the cells began ringing. Jim checked the caller ID on one of the terminals and saw it was the captain and decided that this was our problem. Well, he said it was our problem, but everyone knew it was really Sarge's. Chain of command goes both ways and all that. So we hauled our two exhausted to be fearless leader off the ground, relocated his shoulder, and pushed him towards the nearest comm terminal. He stared at the thing reproachfully for a few seconds, swore a bit to make himself feel better, then finally bit the bullet and grabbed the handset. All of us listened in as Sarge answered the call, both because we were curious and because the captain was yelling so loud that it was impossible for us not to. The man in charge of us charge of flying us through the void who sounded both furious and terrified had a few questions for us specifically what in the emperor's name had we done why his navigator was hysterical and why his atropath was dead and why two hive ships were headed towards us let me tell you nothing ruins the of victory quite thoroughly as hearing about how much collateral damage there was anyway sarge dealt with the captain by holding out the handset at arm's length and waiting for the man to run out of breath when his chance came sarge told the captain we had the cargo secure then promised to come up to the bridge while he did that the rest of us wearily speculated on how screwed we were and collected our teammates from the blood-filled corridor fumbles was alive but completely out of it and there was something off about his eyes, you know, aside from being all rolled back and fucky looking, it was quickly decided that he needed a trip to the med bay, as did Hannah and the adept. Despite being in better shape than Fumbles, both of them were obviously in a pretty fair amount of pain from their various dents and bruises. The less callous members of the squad felt a little bit guilty about that. Sometimes it's easy to forget that even the weediest guardsman is a great deal tougher than most folks. So as I said, Sarge finished his call with a promise to come up to the bridge, which led to a near mutiny from the rest of us, it said something about our level of exhaustion. We found the prospect of yet another damned hike more distressing than the incoming hive ships. Since he was far too tired himself to force us all to come with him, and because there was some other stuff that needed doing anyway, everyone but Amy, who turned out to be terrible at rock, paper, scissors, was excused from that trek. Nubby and Twitch were tasked with taking Fumbles, the adept, and Hannah to the medbay on the massively dented cargo pallet. Pink wanted to join the medbay group both to get patched up and to retrieve Spot, but Jim and Fio needed his help with something technical sounding, so he had to stay. Hannah wound up promising to save his drone from whatever horrible medical things were being done to it and send it down with whoever was going to clean up the giant warp blood puddle. Sergeant Amy arrived on the bridge, where they were surprised to discover that they were not the only ones covered in blood. The communications officer's front side had a nice coating of red, with a few white and gray chunks mixed in. It turned out that when the captain said the astropath was dead, he meant really, really, really dead. Anyways, the captain was up on his podium doing captainy things. When he saw Sergeant Amy, he paused from yelling at people and spared all of ten, ten seconds to tell Sarge that there was now three hive ships incoming. He had absolutely no intention of letting them get in the firing range, and we'd be leaving just as soon as the warp drive finished warming up. After that, Sarge would explain just what us dirt suckers had done to the ship. As the captain went back to yelling at subordinates, Sarge digested the new information. After a few seconds, Amy realized he was stuck and performed the single duty she'd been brought along for, which was to say she jabbed Sarge in the ribs and reminded him to ask about the Space Marines. While Sarge stepped up to the podium with the captain, Amy, her important work completed, commandeered a comfy-looking chair from a terrified ensign. She found off all attempts to remove her with a combination of obscenity, death threats, and some totally justified violence. 
The discussion on the podium quickly became an argument, albeit a quiet one. Sarge was not happy to hear that the Space Marines were not aboard or that the captain had no intention of waiting for them. The captain was not happy with Sarge's complete lack of understanding when it came to the realities of naval warfare. Sarge made nearly a dozen suggestions of how time could be bought. The captain, using the same sort of condescending tone we used when talking about basic squad tactics to a deaf and such, explained why I've, every single one was either unwise, idiotic, or downright impossible. In the end, Sarge was forced to accept that unless the Space Marines made it back on their own, or at least started answering their box, they were going to be left behind. He dejectedly left the captain to his business and wandered over to the brain splatter communications officer. Out of a morbid sense of duty and the fact that all of his information had already been broadcast to Space Marines, Sarge had the officer direct the Vox Ray towards the hive ship that Rebus had boarded, and then began explaining the situation. The rather bleak message got no response, which indicated that Marines were still too close to the hive ship to break Vox silence, or as Amy unhelpfully suggested, that they were already dead. After a few minutes, Sarge's transmissions dissolved into awkward apologies for abandoning the Space Marines to their deaths. Eventually, it grew so pathetic that Amy forced Sarge to hang up the box and stop embarrassing herself. A second ensign was evicted from his chair, and both were, both of them sat and watched the bridge's tactical display and the countdown to warp slowly continued. It was an incredibly depressing scene, but Sarge felt the need felt he needed to stay till the end, and Amy was similarly bound to keep Sarge company. Sarge moped. Amy flicked pieces of orc at the two tech priests on the bridge. Then the captain, captained, and the rest of the bridge officers ran around doing stuff like redirecting the void shields. Then at warp minus sixty, everyone plunged as the psychic equivalent of millions of nails running down a massive chalkboard swept over them. Luckily, the bridge's windows had already been covered in preparation for entering the warp, so no one was driven insane by the sight of a massive hole in reality, forming and sucking an entire hive ship, not to mention a few thousand orc fighters, into the warp. In the confusion of prayers and the curses that followed, Sarge noticed the box station chiming. Sarge nearly strangled the communications officers. He yanked the praying man up off the floor and back into his damn seat. After a few seconds of button pressing from the officer and unhelpful yelling from Sarge, the Vox station spat out a piece of paper. Sarge snatched the paper and scanned the three lines of text on it. The only one that made sense was, Do not let us be forgotten, Sergeant Rebus. But that was enough for Sarge. He ran to the captain and thrust the paper into his hands. Sarge was halfway through triumphantly telling the captain the Marines were alive and probably just needed a small amount of time to dock, and the captain shrugged, handed the paper back. Amy had restrained Sarge as the captain told all hands to brace and began the final countdown warp. Ten seconds later, the most violent warp transit either Sarge or Amy had ever experienced knocked them both to the ground. Over in the med bay, Twitch and Nubby had to hold Fumbles down as he suffered a massive seizure, and Doc had to pour fortune to vomit while wearing a surgical mask. Had the poor fortune. Down in the psyker holding cells, Tink was knocked on his ass as a few overstressed pieces of equipment underwent rapid, unplanned disassembly. As Jim hauled him back up, Theo poked his head on asked if they had been... if they... If they had been the warp, if that had been the warp, if that had been the warp job, because the psychic pressure of the hive mind wasn't decreasing, the ensuing argument over whether Theo actually knew how to read the exterior psychic activity display was interrupted by a bolt of green fucking lightning. Back on the bridge, the captain explained that the first two lines of the Space Marine's message had consisted of an astropathic contact code and orbital vector. The code was probably to reach some emperor-sized battle barge, and with the vector, they'd been able to jump in and pick their. And with the vector, they'd be able to jump in and pick up their stranded battle brothers. It'd probably take a few months, but Marines are supposed to be very patient about that sort of thing. Sarge accepted this without argument, mostly because he was too tired to get back up. Unfortunately, Sarge wasn't allowed to just go to sleep on the floor of the bridge. It wasn't that the captain or any of the other bridge officers objected. After the explanation, he became preoccupied with some unexpected hive-shaped. 
hive ship shaped blips on the scanners and said the problem was a very annoying voice in his combi. Tank, who was talking with the speed of someone that had just been dosed on stim, had a few questions about what the hell was going on. Sarge was forced to get off the, the comfortable floor and explain that the big spike of warp energy had been the vortex bomb. No one had known the jump would be that bad, and the hive mind continued presence had probably had something to do with the remains of the vortex hive ship floating next to us in the warp. There was a bit of chatter in the background that sort of like told you so, but Tink was too hyped up to actually listen to the answers. Halfway through Sarge's explanation, Tink started a high-speed tirade about how delicate and complex every piece of equipment in the cells was, how much of that equipment had been damaged during his zone thirst imprisonment, and how important it was to be told about things before they happened. Tink's irate rambling was finally brought to a halt by the sound of a lightning bolt and some incredibly girly screaming in the background, followed by Jim ripping the combi off of Tink's head and screaming, The Solarthorpe is awake! into it. According to Amy, Sarge didn't start crying when he realized the mission wasn't over yet, but it was a close thing. His despair didn't last long enough within a few seconds. He was barking a sit rep out of Tink and had Amy relaying orders to the rest of us. In summary, the stasis unit was on the fritz. The war presence, shroud, and exterior size shielding were being steadily torn apart by the hive mind's continued assault. The size suppressor was currently on fire, and the zoanthrope was awake. The end result was the captive Xenos was shooting half-strength lightning bolts every time the stasis field flickered, and everything was seconds away from spontaneously exploding. The situation was bad, but not quite as bad as Jim had made it sound. Dick had made sure that he could fix everything. All he needed was old Bill, Hannah, and every available tech priest, a whole lot of parts, and some idiots to stand in front of the lightning bolts, to be sent down to the Psyker holding cells. Also Doc, or someone better at medicine than Doc, because Tink couldn't feel his leg anymore, and Jim's fleshy bits were a bit crispy. Oh, and recap. Lots and lots of recap. It took a lot of yelling and a bit of theft, not to mention at least two outright abductions to put the relief force together. But we managed it. What followed was an absolutely heroic repair effort by the techies, plus a fair bit of general assistance from the rest of us. Which is to say that in addition to playing gopher, we took turns holding a grounded grounded boarding shield in front of the zoanthrope, and shooting the small demonic forms that occasionally rose out of the blood pool in the hallway. Finally, after several hours of frantic labor, and what we were later informed was a similarly frantic retreat from the mangled, but still living remains of the hive ship, the occurrence border dropped back out of the warp, and the situation in the cells stabilized. We declared victory, and went the fuck to sleep. Now, I say we declared victory, but that was more in the tactical sense than the strategic. We'd reached a sort of temporary calm spot, but all of us knew it was not going to last. We'd captured the Zoanthrope, we captured the Zoanthrope and repaired its prison to a sort of minimally functional level. We still had to haul it across an entire segmentum. That meant months of warp travel, which, given the notorious unworthiness of our ship, was quite dangerous enough without in the imprisoned Xenos Psyker. None of us were optimistic enough to think that we'd make it through the whole thing without incident, and I won't go into what the more pessimistic members of the squad predicted. Once we'd all gotten some very much needed sleep and medical treatment, a long and incredibly tedious post-mission meeting was held. All of us attended, and after the initial part where we regaled everyone with our heroic exploits, people started finding excuses to leave. These ranged from legitimate concerns about projects and patients to Nubby's dubious mumbling about having left his felid in the oven to Amy just walking out, but eventually everyone but Sarge and Jim escaped. In the end, it was just them, the captain, the adepts, and a few of the ship's officers planning out the whole mad voyage while the rest of us slouched around the medbay. Our continuous presence in the medbay wasn't really appreciated. The hospitality didn't really mind us, but her minions made several pointed comments about how nice it would be if some of us specifically Nubby and Twitch, went back to our own damn quarters. We ignored them, though. It's not like we don't appreci- didn't appreciate our quarters, we just wanted to stick together, and both Doc and Fumbles were more or less uh, stuck in the medbay. 
Luckily, Doc wasn't stuck in the med bay because he'd been badly hurt. His girlfriend might have done horrible medical things to us if he'd been nearly crippled again. In fact, Doc was doing better than the rest of us were, primarily because he'd missed out on the, that shit show in the cells. Sergeant Gravis was in pretty bad shape, though, and most of Doc's time was taken up with his treatment. While the bisected Space Marine's condition had, impl- had improved slightly when he'd been moved to the much better stock and staff med bay, that had only been temporary. There was some sort of complex chemical war going on between the tyranotoxins and Gravis's weird Space Marine biology. Doc's girlfriend had hooked up a medical co- cogitator to some sort of socket in Gravis's power armor. Doc was constantly either injecting or extracting fluids from the comatose Astartes, based on what it said. It was remarkably unpleasant to watch, and the rest of us found it amazing how persistent Doc was about the whole thing. Honestly, the rest of us, including the hospitaler, mind you, were in favor of just letting the Space Marine die after the second day of horrible medical torture. But Doc seemed committed to keeping Gravis alive as long as it was possible. We left him to it, both because it was far too gross to keep watching and because Fumbles needed our company more than Doc. Fumbles was in the med bay for what you might call personal reasons. He'd come out of the psychic battle with the, zo- the zone thropper hive mind or whatever. Different. Mentally, he was okay. I mean, he was still a bit neurotic and starved for praise as ever, but he still uncontrollably broadcast his emotions to everyone nearby. But aside from that and not remembering anything from the light, he was fine. The problem was his eyes. They At first, they just looked odd, and he was mostly blind. But over the... Over the few days we rested in normal space, they sort of grew and, and changed. Now, none of us wanted to use the M word, even if he was a psyker to begin with. That's sort of the stuff you're supposed to tell the commissar about. I mean, his eyes got to the side of a bloody fist. Well, maybe not Sarge's fist, but definitely as big as one of Doc's girly hands. Anyways, that wasn't all. His pupils got all weird, too. And at their smallest, they were about as white as your white around as your finger. Plus, they sort of shined a bit. And they didn't always stay circular. It was creepy as all hell, let me tell you. Especially because his eyelids didn't grow, so he couldn't properly close his eyes. Creepiness aside, though, the eye thing was amazingly unpleasant for fumbles. Well, for one thing, they didn't fit in his head properly, and there were all sort of painful pressure building up. Then there were how sensitive they were. Anything but the dimmest light blinded the poor guy, and he couldn't even see that well in the dark, since the skull pressure kept him from focusing. He wound up hiding away in one of the private treatment rooms with all the lights off and the windows shut, radiating misery. It was all we could do to take turns trying to make him feel better and matters were not helped by the way the hospitaler initially reacted to the situation. I mean, Doc's girlfriend didn't go all purge the unclean, but after it became obvious what sort of shit was going on, she began studiously ignoring fumbles. This was especially rough on the little guy, you know, being a telepath and all. Luckily, Doc stepped in and he got some help from our old diplomat adept too. They sat down with her and after a few hours, she came into fumbles' room, muttering to herself about it being... Just another wound suffered in the Emperor's service. Nubby and Twitch were initially distrustful of the change of heart, but she let the more hygienic of the pair say to observe, and some medically approved skull cracking and eyelid stretching later, Fumbles was feeling much better. He's got he, anime eyes now. Yes, he does in fact have <laughs> anime eyes now. Or giant fucking... It, it reminds me of uh, your character in Alex's campaign, Jacob. In a way. Thank you. That's what I was thinking, honestly. <laughs> the fucking picture I keep using. Anyway, we all hung out in the med bay while Sarge had his incredibly long meeting and had a quiet sort of post-mission celebration. This primarily consisted of hanging out in Fumble's darkened room, while drinking, and the sort of idle bullshitting that all guardsmen revel in. Twitch sat next to Fumble's and gave him a blow-by-blow of our mission, with a lot of commentary about what was really going on added in. Fumbles mostly just nodded and played with the pair of welding goggles Nubby had acquired for him from somewhere. 
They were going to need some resizing before he could wear them, but after that, he'd be able to leave the room and wouldn't look any weirder than the rest of us. Doc, who was on break from Gravis watching, and Amy speculated on what Sergeant Rebus and his scouts were doing to pass the time. Doc's ideas were all about hibernation and other boring medical stuff, and Amy mocked him for his lack of imagination. His suggestion, Her suggestions were definitely more imaginative, bordering on the heretical even, and Doc hastily changed the subject. Unfortunately, he did this by congratulating her on going a whole mission without a facial burn, and on the regrowth of her hair. He managed to duck the bottle she threw at him, though. Nubby and Tink started talking about the various ways we'd come uh, out ahead on the mission. By their reckoning, we were up by a few grav chutes, a power sword, a bolter, and a whole collection of space marine toys, not to mention the moderately damaged stealth shuttle that was still waiting for us to get around to fixing the damn thing. Tink was beginning to speculate on whether Gravis really needed the bottom half of his power armor and what he could make out of it if he had the time when Sarge finally returned from his planning session. After automatically flipping the lights on, blinding fumbles, and hastily turning them back off, Sarge grabbed a seat and told Tank to stop contemplating tech heresy. All of us watched him as he grabbed a bottle, leaned back, and eyed Tank a little more. In an idle sort of way, Sarge asked us a purely hypothetical question. If Jim had been in the meeting room with him, old Bill and Hannah were busy keeping the ship running, and Tank was here, then who was down in the cells keeping everything running and watching the zoanthrope? Only answer we could think of is Theo, which couldn't possibly be right. It'd be colossally, idiotically one of our Xenos prisoners, alone and unsupervised, in charge of keeping the other Xenos prisoner from escaping and killing us all. Surely there must be some other explanation, one which he was just too dumb to think of, right? Tink pondered that for a second, and then scrambled for the door. Sarge warily laughed and told him to sit back down. Once Tink was seated, Sarge looked at each of us and gave us the lowdown. As we knew, the Psyker holding cells were falling apart. The Zillanthrop was doing bad things every time the status field flickered. Sergeant Gravis was at death's door, and our ship's astropath had suffered a severe case of exploding head. We had no choice but to get back into the warp, but we were going to head for the nearest civilized Imperial world first. From there, we could order some replacement parts, get a new astropath, call for the Marines pickup, and hand Gravis over to someone with serious medical facilities. It was going to be rough, and we'd have to stand constant guard against warp shenanigans, but luckily it would only take a week, just one week of frantic jury rigging, dealing with whatever the zone throw from the warp could throw at us and keeping Gravis from melting. Then it would be over. Honestly, looking back, I have no idea why any of us believed it's going to be that easy. Well, that was a fun one. It was very tense, because, you know, we, we had a lot of character deaths at the beginning, um, and the whole time mm-hmm. I was like, please don't kill off any of them. Please, please make it out of this. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, this next one's so short. Mm-hmm. It's an interlude. It's beautiful. I wager next time we read yeah. the interlude, and then we read half of the one following it. Uh, to put that into perspective, the length sure. of that, doing that would mean we would read 4,000 less words than we read today. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Jesus I Christ. think that's getting some of these are long. But, but it's it's get it's getting better as it goes along. Although the um the, the the rate of errors is slowly increasing, as I saw like a, like a repeat of three words uh, together, but it's still readable, which is good enough for me. It's still plenty, plenty, plenty readable. 
yeah, as long as 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 long as I can like like if the, like the errors are like infrequent enough and small enough where I can just like correct it in my head, then I don't have an issue. Yes, and it looks like from here on out there will be no more thirty thousand. Oh no, never mind. There there is one more chapter that is greater than thirty thousand words, but most of them are around twenty thousand to sixteen thousand. That's good. Yeah, the one that's above thirty thousand though is uh, bordering on forty thousand. So we're gonna want to oh. cut that one up a lot. Oh, that's just more content for you guys. Uh, and also yeah. for you guys watching at home, the first episode of All Garsman Party has hit two hundred views. It's our most watched episode. Thank you all for listening to the series because we all really enjoy it, and we're glad that it's gotten so much, um, so much traction. More so. The chain of memories, which is you should drop a good some comments. You should drop some comments. Yeah. You should give some suggestions. Find other things that you might want us to read. Yes, because you can you comment on Spotify, and we 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 will see it. Yes, you guys should also uh, listen to it eight hundred more times. Definitely, definitely do that. All right, anyways, we love you. I don't.